thinking about dispensationalism, and we're explaining dispensationalism. And tonight we want to speak about the seven dispensations. The seven dispensations. So Luke chapter 16, verse 1. And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward. And the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord shall take away or taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then said he to the other, How much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. He said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye feel, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore you have not, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, uh, who shall give you that which is your own? Shall we pray? Father, we thank thee tonight for your word. We thank you tonight that it is the word of truth, Lord. That when we open this book, it's not just true if it speaks to us, but it's true all the way through. And Lord, every single word is God-breathed. And we're thankful tonight that we have these inspired scriptures that they are infallible, that they are inerrant, that they're immutable and eternal, that they are the inspired word of God. And Father, we pray tonight that as we look into the Bible together, as we think about the subject matter, Lord, you'd help us to understand the principles involved. Lord, we may debate about how many dispensations there are or the titles of dispensations, but Lord, that's all secondary. Uh, help us to see, Lord, that under different, uh, under different, at different times and in different periods, uh, Lord, you dealt with one group of people slightly differently uh, from another, and yet you remained Lord. You remained the same, uh, although the methodology uh, perhaps changed or the governance changed. So, Father, we just pray tonight that you bless us and help us, encourage us in your truth, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, did you ever have anybody say to you, if we get a wee screen up, please, did you ever have anyone say to you, you, you only had one job? Did you ever hear somebody say that to you? You only had one job. And the inference is that you had only one thing to do, and you couldn't even do that correctly. People usually say it tongue-in-cheek. You only had one job. You only, you, only, you only had one task at hand. And I guess that sums up human history. It's almost as though the Lord says to every, in every age to man, you only had one thing. You only had one job, uh, and yet you failed. And in every dispensation, you'll find there is human failure in the light of God-given responsibility. Now, let's, let's think about this text tonight. I've read this text because it's an insight into the principles of stewardship. And uh, we talked about uh, stewardship last week. We talked about the word for dispensation, oikonomos. I'll get this out yet. Uh, uh, and that, that word means to, to be a good steward. To, it really means house governance, to govern a house, to manage a home. Uh, and we talked about that last week, the idea that you manage uh, different people, different ways, and that God has managed different people uh, different ways, if we can use that uh, kind of parallel. <coughs> but in this parable, you get an idea of what's entailed in stewardship, and it's going to be helpful to us as we take what we learn tonight, and then we later in the evening apply it to the dispensational 
arrangement. Now, if you look at our text this evening, in chapter 16, you'll notice there are two parties. One has the authority to delegate duties. That's the, the Lord in this particular instance, uh, the one who is the, uh, is the governor. And the other one has a responsibility uh, to carry out those duties. So there's the first thing I want you to get. In every stewardship, there's a degree of responsibility. There are specific responsibilities. And in this parable, the steward failed in his responsibilities. He had, according to verse 1, wasted the goods of his Lord. And so he is held to account in verse 2. And there's the second element of stewardship. He's held to account uh, for the discharge of his stewardship. And uh, that could have happened at any time. It's the prerogative of the master uh, to ask concerning his possessions any time he wishes. So think about it like a landlord. You know, a landlord may visit his property any time he wants. If he's renting to somebody, it's his property. The renter is expected to take care of his property to a certain degree. And the landlord can come in at any moment and he can have a quick on-the-spot check and see whether or not his house is being maintained to, to an acceptable standard. And if not, well, then there's, there's going to be a payday. He may tell the uh, renter that he's no longer prepared to rent to him and may evict him at the end of that particular contract. And you see the same thing here. This, uh, this Lord comes, this, uh, this rich man comes, he calls the steward uh, to account. The steward has failed, and so there is going to be a change made. Uh, at any time uh, that uh, there's unfaithfulness found in a, in a steward in an existing administration. Notice in verse 2, uh, he says that thou mayest be no longer steward. So there's a change made. You're no longer in charge. You're no longer going to manage my property in this way. So here's the three factors that are existent in stewardship. Number one, a steward is given a certain responsibility to which he must remain faithful. Number two, any failure may result in a change. And number three, there is an element of judgment or accountability, and the steward must give account. And so that's what we read last week. We said that, you know, it was required in a steward that he is found faithful. And we are stewards uh, of the gospel and of, of God's ministry of grace. So we apply this to the overall uh, run of Scripture. And, uh, you know, in First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul said an interesting thing. He said this to the Thessalonians, But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write on to you. He uses two words, time and seasons. He talks about times. He talks about seasons. Times is chronos, from which we get the word chronology. And it refers to any period of time, whether it's long or short. Seasons is a different word. It's kairos. And it speaks about the characteristics of those times. So God operates according to times and seasons. He operates within the parameters of time periods, whether they be long periods of time or short periods of time. And indeed, he, uh, he operates within seasons. Uh, there are different characteristics in play in each particular time. So I want you to see tonight, and we'll not be very long this evening, I don't think. Usually that's the kiss of death when I say that. But, uh, but I want you to see tonight uh, the principles of stewardship uh, or dispensationalism as we peruse the scriptures and see if we can determine the times and the seasons as they are revealed in Scripture, and see if we can find a particular uh, pattern. Now, we talked last week about uh, Pierre Poiret and uh, his dispensational model uh, from 1687, I think it was, uh, and how he set it out according to the maturity of the human being, beginning with infancy all the way through to uh, adulthood and to old age and decay and then restoration. And uh, I was just sitting the other day watching a video uh, on YouTube and uh, the, there was a guy on, I can't remember his name now, but he had the smuggest look you ever saw in anybody's face in your life and he was trying to convince people that dispensationalism began with Schofield. And he just sat there and looked like, you've got to believe me because I'm so smart and I'm telling you this. And I'm sitting there thinking, what a twit. 
Why doesn't he actually go and do some study and find out that dispensationalism was in existence long before Schofield uh, came along? But anyway, I digress, and I'll probably get myself into trouble if I continue digressing. So we'll go to our subject, and uh, I want to think about these dispensations. You see, the principles of dispensationalism are there. And, uh, you know, most dispensationalists, certainly classical dispensationalists, think of there being seven dispensations. Seven dispensations. And I want to look at those seven dispensations uh, tonight. And the first of those is this, the dispensation of innocence. And as you look at the little uh, table on the left, you'll see there's a responsibility to obey God. There's a failure. There was disobedience. And, and then there's judgment. There's the curse and there's death. So this is the first time period. Uh, this is the characteristic of that time period is innocence. Uh, it's a period that is, exists prior to the fall of man. Now, the term innocence is not a good term. It's not an ideal term. I shouldn't say it's not a good term, but it's not an ideal term because if you use the word innocence, the implication is that there's the presence of guilt or sin. But of course, before the fall, there was no guilt and there was no sin, and our forefathers had no experience of such things. And so, you know, I, I've, I've hunted and looked and thought, and I've done many times over my ministry and thought, there's got to be a better word for this. But actually, this is the best word that there is probably to describe the experience of man in the garden prior to the fall. So as we open our Bibles, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And we see that Adam and Eve are given responsibility. And here's their responsibility in verses 15 uh, to 17. It says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Notice there's a commandment, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. <coughs> For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So simply put, they were to obey God. That was their responsibility. And their obedience was tested by means of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Would they obey God with respect to the fruit of that tree, or would they disobey him? And uh, that was the only tree from which they were not permitted to eat. Now, of course, we know that they failed in that respect, that they did eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And therefore, we could say of them that they were unfaithful stewards. They didn't manage God's garden well. Uh, they fell and they sinned and they did eat. And of course, you can read about that in chapter 3 of Genesis when you read about the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, you know this passage, uh, which the Lord God had made. He said unto the woman, you have, you have God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Long story short, you get down to verse 6 and says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, it was a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now notice what verse 7 says. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So they failed, and they failed dramatically. And the result of that, from verse 8 onwards of that chapter, is judgment. They were cursed, and death was introduced. So it's safe to say that after the failure, things changed. Life was never going to be the same again for Adam and Eve. They were no longer going to be dwelling in innocence. They were no longer going to be able to freely fellowship with God in the cool of the day. They no longer had a lot of the liberties that they previously enjoyed. Uh, suddenly there's constraints put upon them. Suddenly they're, uh, they're having to work in the sweat of their brow. Uh, you know, Eve is going to give birth uh, in labor and she's going to suffer uh, pain in that process. All of this is part and parcel of the curse that God introduces. So they go from a world in which there is no death, no disease, no decay, uh, no distress, and neither in a world where all of these things have been introduced. 
and the effects of the fall uh, become apparent everywhere, uh, and the very earth itself displays the marks of the curse. And so we see that all around us, even at this time of year, we're into that season which the Americans appropriately call fall, we call autumn, but you can see that death and decay is all around you in the plant life, out in the fields, you see the leaves falling and all the rest of it. And so the world changed. That, you know, that, Adam didn't know fall. He didn't know autumn in the period of innocence, in the dispensation of innocence. But he understood it afterwards when death and decay took hold. Now, you cannot deny that there is not a difference made between the experience of Adam before the fall and after the fall, that something dramatic happened. Now, by the close of Genesis chapter 3, we enter into a whole new world and a new world order of things in a period that is now called the dispensation of conscience. And again, you have the same three uh, elements, responsibility, failure, and judgment. Responsibility was to do good, to bring blood sacrifice. The failure was wickedness, corruption, violence, and the judgment in the end is the flood of Noah's day. So this is the dispensation of conscience. And you see conscience becoming alive in uh, chapter 3 and verse 7 when the uh, first couple uh, both realized that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So they were completely naked in the Garden of Eden, but after the fall, they both recognized that this isn't a good state for us to be in, and they covered up. And man has been covering up his body from that day uh, to this. So what was expected of men then in chapter 3 and verse 22? Uh, notice there were to know the difference between good and evil. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Chapter 4 and verse 4, we find that Cain and Abel, verses 3 and 4, Cain and Abel understood the necessity of sacrifice. In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstlings of the flock and his fat, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, but to Cain and to his, and to his offering he had no respect. Now here's the question. Before that point in time, was Adam and Eve sacrificing animals? No. You don't read anywhere in those first three chapters that Adam and Eve sacrificed anything. They didn't. It wasn't part of their uh, experience. It wasn't part of what God was demanding of them. What God told them was, don't eat of that tree. That was it. Some and substance of, of their commandments was, thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was as much as they had to take care of. They had one thing to do, and they failed in doing that. But now that they've fallen and they've entered into a period of consciousness, of conscience, of self-awareness, of uh, a sense of right and wrong, uh, now they realize that actually we're going to have to appease God in some way. We're going to have to bring some kind of offering if we're going to make an approach unto God. And that was required of them. That was their responsibility. But you get into later on in the book of Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, you see that far from choosing good over evil and right over wrong, and of course you find this out even in chapter 4 where Cain kills Abel, and you see already things are beginning to take a, a downturn. But in chapter 6 and verses 5 and 6, God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before the Lord, and the earth was filled with violence. It was over, uh, overrunning with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So there's the failure in the economy of conscience. We find that man did not respond to his conscience as he should have done but rather that he ignored his conscience. And instead of things getting better and better after the fall, they just got worse and worse and deteriorated until ultimately 
we enter into a period of judgment, the worldwide flood of Noah's day. And we, uh, and we read that there, that it repented the Lord uh, that, uh, on the earth. And, uh, sorry, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And we know he did that with the flood as the instrument of destruction. So what happens after the flood? We go into a third dispensation because you cannot deny that the world was different after the fall than it was before the fall. And you cannot deny that the world was different after the flood as it was before the flood. And so you come into this next dispensation, which is labeled the dispensation of human government. And again, you have these three elements, responsibility, failure, judgment. The responsibility was, among other things, to scatter and multiply. The failure was that they did not scatter, that they all decided to center in one place, to build the Tower of Babel, a tower under the heavens, an idolatrous temple. And the consequence was judgment, confusion of the languages. God came down among them and introduced language into man's experience. So that's a change. God is dealing with people differently after the flood than he did before the flood. He dealt with people differently after the fall than he did before the fall. You see, this is, this is man's stewardship. He's given them different responsibilities. God remains the same, but humanity has a different responsibility. And he's only one thing to do, so to speak. And man fails in doing that thing and God judges him. This is the pattern of dispensationalism. So that this dispensation, the dispensation of human government, derives its name from chapter 9 and verses 5 and 6. It says, And surely your blood of your lives, this is after Noah's come out of the ark, your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, at the hand and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So it's very interesting here. Suddenly, God gives man the right, the authority, the responsibility, the governance, if you like, to determine and to exercise the death penalty. Capital punishment is a feature of this dispensation. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting there. He even uh, talks about if any beast sheds the blood of a man, you know, God's going to require the blood of that beast. So we, we still practice that in our society. You know, if you have a dog that goes loose in the street and bites people, well, the consequence is that animal is going to be put down. He pays with his life. Uh, sadly, we don't do that when it comes to human murder. Uh, we tend to overlook that because of, because of the, the liberal mindset that is set into our society. But nevertheless, that was the, that was the, uh, the, the characteristic of that time, that God ordained capital punishment and instituted for the first time human governance over human lives. Um, you know, Reynolds Shars. Uh, says this, since the fountainhead of all human corruption prior to the flood was the continued existence of the first murderer, Cain, God determined that never again would he allow murderers to infect the rest of humanity with their rebellious attitudes. Shortly after Noah and his family left the ark, God ordained capital punishment for murderers. So you see that when Cain committed murder, he was actually protected from, from uh, revenge. He, was, he had a mark put upon him and no man was to touch him. But after the flood, Cain would have been put to death. He would have suffered capital punishment after the flood. Pre-flood, post-fall, he gets off with it. All right? I don't say he gets off with it. He doesn't get off with it. But you know what I mean? He's not put to death as he would have been in this particular period. Furthermore, throughout this period, God demanded that men multiply and replenish the earth. Look in chapter 8, verse 15. And God spake unto Noah saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee, of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. Notice there, be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 9 and verse 1, Noah emerges from the ark. God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. But what did man do? 
Well, we know in chapter 11 what he did. The whole earth was of one language, of one speech. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, and they dwelt there, and they said one to another, Go to, uh, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Notice their motivation. God told them, you got to go forth and multiply. They said, we don't want to do that. You know, that's not on our agenda. Let's instead build a tower to the heavens. Let's worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. Forget this God that's bugging us here with these commandments. Let's worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. We'll just stay here in one place. And consequently, you have human failure. And the result of that failure, of course, is the judgment that comes in in verse 5, where the Lord comes down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built it. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. They've all one language. This they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they've imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And that's exactly what happens. And so uh, verse uh, 9 says, Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And so that's the consequence of their poor stewardship. God told them to scatter and multiply. That's what the, uh, the Lord, the rich man, if you like, if you use the, the uh, parables uh, terminology. That was what he wanted, but that's not what he got. They did not scatter. They, they concentrated themselves in this one place and incurred the judgment of God. So you move from the dispensation of human government to the dispensation of uh, promise. And again, three elements, responsibility, failure, and judgment. The responsibility was to dwell in Canaan land, to possess the promised land. The failure comes when uh, Abraham, during a time of famine, moves out of the land that he was told to go into, and he dwells for a period in Egypt. And ultimately, at the end of this particular dispensation, the judgment is the Egyptian bondage, slavery, uh, 400 years of slavery leading up to the Exodus. So the title for this particular dispensation is taken from Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 6, or chapter 6, sorry, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 15, and Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 9. Let's have a look at chapter 6 and verse 15 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15. It's talking about the Abrahamic covenant here. And it says, verse 15, And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Look at chapter 11 and verse 9. Chapter 11 and verse 9. It says, And by faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, speaking again of Abraham, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So we're told that Abraham obtained the promise and he sojourned in the land of promise until this dispensation. Now here's what I want you to see. All mankind was directly related to God's governmental principles. Everybody, God was dealing with everybody all at the same time. But now God sets aside one man and one family. And he's dealing with just that one man and his descendants, which ultimately become a nation. And he makes them a, a representative test for all. They become, a, they become a test for everybody on earth. And the responsibility of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was to simply believe and serve God, who gave them every material and spiritual encouragement to do so. The land of promise was theirs, the blessings was theirs, all those things entailed the Abrahamic covenant were theirs as long as they remained in the land. However, hardly is the promise given. I mean, chapter 12, verses 1 to 7 is where you first read of the Abrahamic covenant. After verse 7, you go to chapter 12 and verse 10, what happens? Abraham's out of the land. He's gone. He's already failed. He goes in unbelief. He fails to trust God in a time of famine. And he, you know, he, 
he, uh, he basically sets up the whole spirit of this dispensation in that one move. And so the land is forsaken, and this marks the beginning of their failure. So there was ongoing failure then on several different occasions. The patriarchs disobeyed God through lapses of faith concerning the fulfillment of God's promises. Abraham fathers Ishmael through Hagar, which you see the consequences of even now in Israel. Uh, you know, you have him lying not once but twice concerning his wife Sarah. Uh, his son Isaac lies concerning Rebekah. Jacob was a uh, habitual liar. And when Jacob led his family into Egypt to escape the famine in Canaan, they did not return. And so this dispensation ends with bondage in Egypt. Okay? So now we discover a new thing. Something new is now going to happen because they're not going to be in bondage in Egypt forever. A new dispensation comes into play and you enter into the dispensation of the law. Okay, again, three elements, responsibility, failure, judgment. <coughs> responsibility is to keep the whole law. The failure is that they broke the law as we break the law. And the consequence was judgment, worldwide dispersal of the Jewish people. Now, I want you to look at Galatians chapter 3 for a moment. Galatians chapter 3 and verses Let's read from verse 15 to 29. Because I want you to see that Paul makes a distinction between the dispensation of promise and the dispensation of the law. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, Yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of non-effect. So notice he makes a distinction between the law, which comes 430 years later, and the promise. And he says the one doesn't outdo the other. You see, the, the Mosaic covenant, which was under the law, was conditional. God said, if you obey my word, if you obey my law, you can stay in the land. If you disobey my law, you're going to be put out of the land and you're going to be cursed. But the promise, the promise holds good. God says the promises to Abraham and his descendants that they will ultimately inherit this land. So he says this, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. He's making this distinction between the, the law, the dispensation of law, and the dispensation of promise. Wherefore, then serveth the law. What's the purpose of the law? The promise isn't contingent upon it. He says it was added because of what? Transgressions, failures till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, fairly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So he's making a distinction actually between three dispensations. The dispensation of promise under which Abraham operated. The dispensation of law which came in by means of Moses. And the dispensation of uh, of of the church 
age, which we're going to talk about next, uh, which uh, we're in, you no longer have uh, many of the constraints of the Old Testament law. In fact, the vast majority of the constraints of the Old Testament law, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither bond nor free. We're no longer dealing with those things, you know. Uh, the church is both Jew and Gentile comprised in one body. It matters whether you're bond or you're free. It doesn't matter whether you're a slave or you're a slave owner. Uh, if you're in Christ, you know, you're in the one body. And so there's a real difference between this period of time and that period of time and the time before that again. So here's, here's the deal. To Israel was given the Mosaic Law, 613 commandments that governed all the phases of life and activity, social, moral, and ceremonial. The responsibility of the Jew in the Old Testament was to keep the whole law. Now, how much of the law do you have to fail on to fail the whole law? Answer, just one commandment. <laughs> you just sin one time, you've broke the whole thing. And so naturally, they feel. They feel wholesale. And so the question is, well, what's the purpose of the law? Just that, the purpose of the law is to reveal the failure of man. So that when Christ comes, we have a redeemer, we have a savior, we have someone we can turn to. We have hope where the law left us hopeless. Right? So the responsibility of the nation was to do all of the law uh, and to keep every part of it, uh, but they failed. They failed in that responsibility. Look in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. I remember we touched on this on Sunday morning, Romans 9, 10, 11, that tract of Scripture that deals with what becomes of the Jews now that the Gentiles have been grafted in and have been entered into the plan of salvation. And uh, chapter, uh, chapter 10, uh, I think we read chapter 9, the early verses, and chapter 11, the early verses. But chapter 10, this evening, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And as a result, you know, there's many uh, judgment periods throughout this dispensation. There was judgment on the ten northern tribes when they were taken off into Assyria. There was judgment on the two southern tribes when they were taken captive off into uh, Babylon. Uh, there was, uh, there was uh, judgment uh, ultimately after the return uh, from Judah, or from, from Babylon to Judah, uh, and the reestablishment of the nation. The Messiah comes. They reject the Messiah. They feel there also. And what happens? They're dispersed. They're, they're, they're sent, scattered, threw it into the four corners of the earth. And that's where the Jew has been largely, and entirely actually, until 1948, when, he starts, when God starts to bring them back in uh, to the land again. So that brings us to this present dispensation, the dispensation of the church age. Sometimes this is called the age of grace. Now, let me discourage you from using that phrase, the age of grace. Why? Because every age is an age of grace. Salvation has always been by faith through uh, has been always been by grace through faith, always. It's never been by the law. Nobody was ever saved by keeping the law, not ever. So when you when you say this is the age of grace, you kind of muddy the waters a little bit. Let's call it the church age, and that's what it, that's what it should be called. Um, this is a dispensation uh, which differs from the previous ages. Uh, you know, salvation, as I say, in every age was a matter of grace. Yet when Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, uh, we come there, Paul says an interesting thing. He says, you're not under law, but under grace. What does he mean by that? You're not under law, but under grace. He's talking about the function of grace, and he's paralleling the function of grace with the function of the law. The function of the law was clear. We read it there in Galatians a few moments ago. It's our schoolmaster to bring us on to Christ. The function of grace 
is to do for us what the law could never do, and that is to reconcile us to God and to give us new life in Christ. And the word under, when he says you're not under the law, but under grace, the word under implies under the rule of. You're no longer under the rule of the law. You're no longer living legalistically as Jews were in the Old Testament. But now he says you're living under grace, under the rule of grace. So to help us out here, here's a quotation from Reynolds Shars of Friends of, uh, Friends of Israel. He's with the Lord now. But he said this, Paul was saying that believers in this present dispensation are now under grace rather than the Mosaic law as a ruling factor. Thus, whilst grace continues to function as the way of salvation during this present dispensation, it has assumed the additional function of a ruling factor. So our lives are to be governed by grace. Now, that's why we don't stone people when they mess up. Old Testament under the law, you broke the Sabbath day, what happened? You got stoned. You were, you were stoned to death. It was a capital crime. Now, if somebody breaks, you know, breaks some, uh, some law, if they, break a, if they sin in some way, we don't take them out the back of the church and stone them to death, much as you might want to. We're under grace. We're operating under a different rule. There's a different ruling factor. So we don't go to the Old Testament and say, oh, but the Bible says this, you know, that if, if you sin in this way, you have to die. That's a different dispensation. Different rule is operate, operating. Now we operate under grace. Grace is our function. And grace calls upon us to exercise obedience to the gospel, to maintain the purity of the faith, and to live out the truth of the gospel in our daily lives. So the rule of grace teaches us, according to Titus 2.11, that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So our lives are governed by grace, motivated by grace, functioning by grace, not by law as with the previous dispensation. Now, this is where a lot of the cults get it wrong because cults try to drag you back under the law. They tell you, oh, you've got to obey the commandments. But Paul told us, no, listen, the commandments are beyond you. You're going to have to be saved by grace and operate under the rule of grace from here on out. Different dispensation. And so our lives are governed differently. But as with previous generations, the church has failed. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. How does the age of grace, oh, sorry, the age of grace, the church age end? 1 Timothy chapter 4. It ends in apostasy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall what? Depart from the faith. Doing what? Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. Having their conscience seared with an hot iron. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, dangerous times, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, <coughs> fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Uh, for uh, having, uh, for as of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the church is judged in the end by the growing presence of apostasy and spiritual deception. And just to highlight that, I put up three apostates for you. Pope Francis, very obvious one. Jezebel Meyer. I like to call her Jezebel Meyer. In fact, I call her that so long now. I forget her first name. What is her real first name? 
Joyce. I knew it began with a J. Joyce Meyer, but I always call her Jezebel Meyer. And, uh, and then also you have uh, our, our favorite apostate, Joel Osteen, who, for all of his false doctrine, has a lovely set of teeth. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so the final, <laughs> my wife is shaking her head. She's just shaking her head. Anyway, the final dispensation, before I get myself in more trouble, is the dispensation of the kingdom age. Now, you might say, why is the tribulation not a dispensation? Because the dispensation is the last portion of the dispensation of law. It's the 70th week. It's Daniel's 70th week. Remember, in the book of Daniel, 69 weeks are determined upon your people, and then you have the 70th week, and the tribulation period is the 70th week. So what happens... Uh, and this is one of the arguments for a pre-tribulational rapture. The church is taken, and the dispensation of the church age ends, and what happens? The dispensation of the law resumes, and God's focus is back on the Jews for the last seven years. Okay, that's why you have to have a rebuilt temple and renewed sacrifices and all of that. That's all part and parcel of the Old Testament law, okay? So, the dispensation of grace ultimately gives way to the kingdom age. And the seventh and last dispensation is revealed in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 1 through 10. Let's have a look there. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. It says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled." And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither in his image, neither received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, and such is the second death, and such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And we've read that, that phrase numerous times now, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. It absolutely beggars belief to me that Christians come to this passage and they say, but that doesn't mean a thousand years. Why did God say it over and over again? It doesn't mean a thousand years. It's like he's, he's shouting at you, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. That's the kingdom age. That's the millennial kingdom. You can't get by that. So the seventh dispensation lasts a thousand years. It's the kingdom age. This is not the only scripture passage that speaks of it. Psalm 72 speaks of it. Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 speak of it. Isaiah chapter 11 details some of the characteristics of it. Uh, Romans chapter 8 verses 19 to 22 talk about the restoration and the redemption of all things. Uh, it speaks of it. Christ will be ruling and reigning from David's throne for a thousand years in the kingdom age. His reign will be marked by equity and righteousness. There will be no more war. Uh, the whole of creation will respond with changes in the animal kingdom and the nature. So that's where you read about the wolf flying down with the lamb. Now, you don't put wolves and lambs together in this dispensation. Big mistake. If you're a sheep farmer, sheep farming, and I'm a city boy, but sheep farming 101, I would suggest, means not putting wolves among your sheep. <laughs> different dispensation. Things are operating differently. God is, has brought a different form of governance into the world. So you have this responsibility in the kingdom age to obey the Lord, to worship the Lord. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. For those who are in their mortal flesh, they have to obey him. They have to worship him. They have to come up to the temple and they have to, uh, have to acknowledge him as Lord. The failure is the final rebellion of Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 9. Let's have a look there. It says, and when the thousand years are expired, 
Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And that's the end. That's the judgment. They're then cast into eternal fire, into the lake of fire. And, and that's how this chapter ends. So you can see quite clearly it's a very different experience to our own experience. It's very different from the period of the law. It's very different from the period of promise or human government or conscience or innocence or any of those other times that we, that we talked about. So man's responsibility in this time is to respond to the theocratic rule of Christ, to obey and worship him, but his failure to do so results in his judgment in the lake of fire. So history is brought then to a close at the end of the kingdom age and eternity then dawns and that is the end of all things. Uh, so, so we see how this dispensational framework, and this is what I want you to get, helps us to understand our Bible. Remember what we said last week? There was different house rules in place for your children at different stages in their lives. So it is in the history of man. You see, uh, Pierre Poiré was on to something when he had that, uh, that, that dispensational model where he started with babyhood and worked his way through to old age. He was on to something because he understood that in each age of our lives, we govern our lives differently. But as I said, it wasn't a perfect model. It didn't fit entirely well. And so this model has now evolved over the years and uh, is generally accepted by classical dispensationalists the world over. But the point is that if you read your Bible with this understanding, it will explain to you that, you know, how come, for example, in the Old Testament, people couldn't eat fruit with a seed on the outside, but now you can. The Old Testament, you couldn't have bacon for your breakfast, now you can. You know, you, know, you, you hear people making this mistake all the time, you know, uh, in the argument, the LGBT argument, people say, oh, but, you know, if you quote, if you quote the law uh, concerning a man sleeping with a man, uh, and, and, and you continue down that passage, they'll point out, well, you know, that same passage also speaks about dietary laws. And then they'll ask you, do you keep those dietary laws? And you say, well, no, you don't. And then they say, well, why are, you, why are you insisting on one law and not another law? It's to do with dispensationalism. You won't, you won't get the argument unless you understand dispensationalism, unless you understand that God is governing different people at different times in different ways. They've got different responsibilities in every dispensation, you find there are failures, but their failures are often in different areas, and then there's judgment at the end of it. So that, my friends, is the dispensational model, but the overriding truth throughout all of these ages is that God remains the same. That even though man in his end is going to be totally doomed, you know, God's amazing grace continues to reach out to men throughout every dispensation. All right, we'll leave it there for this evening and go to our time of prayer.